This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes references to sexual assault and depictions of psychological manipulation, domestic abuse, and body horror. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Caleb didn't know what was so special about this hot spring. As far as he was concerned, it was just a bunch of hot water exploding into the air at semi-regular intervals. But his girlfriend was very excited about it. So he let her sit outside on the benches and watch the steam go up and down. He would be reading inside by the Old Faithful Inn's sixth floor fireplace, like a civilized person. A woman interrupted his reading, clearing her throat softly. She asked if he would mind helping her find something she'd lost. He wanted to turn her down, but her voice was so musical. There was a kind of primal need within it he couldn't refuse. He closed his book. Rather than take the elevator, she insisted they use the stairs on the far side of the lobby. The view of the lobby from the high, crisscrossing wooden steps was magnificent, if a little terrifying. People started to look so fragile beneath them as they passed each floor, moving between the shadows of the support beams, which had been carved to resemble trees themselves. He dawdled for too long, taking in the view. When he looked up, the woman was far ahead of him, walking into the dark of the last staircase. He ran after her, gently placing a hand on her shoulder when he finally caught up. Her skin was icy. She turned around, startled. He apologized. Ignoring his confusion, she told him they were running out of time. He asked what it was they were looking for. She said it was something important, but wouldn't elaborate. He kept his eyes peeled, but his gaze kept returning to the woman. Small bruises colored her arms, making her pale skin look almost blue. They reached the platform at the very top of the stairs, known as the Crow's Nest. Nothing was there. Caleb was about to ask what they should do next, when the woman screamed, her legs giving out. Caleb reached out to catch her, but she slipped away. He looked down, barely catching her eyes in the half-light. They were still and gray, her skin sallow around them. Her head was decomposing on the floor, wet and rotten in the warm air trapped at the top of the room. But her body was nowhere to be found. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. 
You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Old Faithful Inn, a century-old hotel overlooking one of Yellowstone National Park's most iconic natural wonders, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Standing at seven stories, the Old Faithful Inn is one of the world's largest log cabin structures. Built from 1903 to 1904, the massive lodge sits just beside Yellowstone National Park's Old Faithful Geyser. As its name suggests, this geothermal feature has erupted regularly every 44 minutes to two hours since its naming in 1870. The geyser is now encircled by viewing decks and the Old Faithful Inn. The Old Faithful Inn's steeply pitched gabled roof extends high above the Wyoming forest. It is capped by a railed platform, or widow's walk, a New England tradition that allows the wives of sailors to see far out to sea, looking for their loved ones on the horizon. In this case, it allows a breathtaking 360-degree view of Yellowstone's natural majesty. The widow's walk features prominently in the inn's most famous ghost story, the tragic tale of a young bride, her cruel husband, and a severed head found high above the hotel lobby. The view stole the breath from Eleanor's lungs. Above her, stars shone brightly against a deep purple sky. Steam exploded from Old Faithful, curling upwards as if desperately reaching for those brilliant stars. Looking at the wild display of nature, Eleanor felt truly free. She turned towards her new husband, Curtis, to see if he had been struck by the same wonder. She loved watching the smile on his face grow to a shiny white grin, joy in a secret only they two shared. But he wasn't looking at Old Faithful. He was looking at her, his mouth a thin line. In the dim light of the candles and the stars, she could just make out a hardness in his expression. Eleanor tried to share her excitement with him, grasping his hand in hers and leading him closer to the edge of the widow's walk. This was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. His hand crushed her fingers. She looked back at him. He didn't say anything to her, but she felt his free hand pushing against her back, forcing her closer and closer to the edge. She felt dizzy as her gaze fell to the ground far below. In the next instant, she was wrapped safely in Curtis's arms. He told her she needed to be more careful. She nodded her head slowly. The last few traces of steam disappeared into the night, taking the joy she had felt moments ago with it. Their month-long honeymoon had soured all too quickly. Eleanor had married for love. She'd been close with Curtis for years lingering as he did work around her family's estate. Her father had warned her that he would only ever be interested in her money. She didn't believe him. Her father disowned her. 
she didn't care. But as the last of the money her father had given her dried up, so too did Curtis's affection. He was so strange now, rough in his handling of her one moment, and then treating her with kid gloves the next. Eleanor wasn't sure which version of him loved her anymore, or if he ever had. Still, their marriage didn't need love. She would settle for a warm regard. Divorce was not an option. She told him so, in no uncertain terms. Eleanor headed to the bathroom of their suite, closing the door behind her. She stared at her pale reflection and cried quietly. She felt a gentle touch against her shoulder. It was a woman in a floor-length silk gown. An older style, but still fashionable. Elegance practically dripped off of her, and she looked at Eleanor with such kindness in her eyes. The woman held out a tissue. Eleanor was taken aback, but took it, apologizing for her appearance. She told the woman that she hadn't known Curtis had invited guests. She hadn't meant to disturb her. The elegant woman, Rose, shook her head. She leaned in close, whispering to Eleanor, warning that they needed to keep their voices soft. Curtis was listening on the other side. Rose hissed that Eleanor was running out of time. Curtis was going to hurt her. If Eleanor had any chance of living through this ordeal, she needed to leave soon. Eleanor shook her head. The theatrics were too much. She asked if Rose had been sent by her father. She even threatened to call her husband in. Rose shook her head slowly and told Eleanor to look in the mirror. Rose's reflection shimmered in and out of focus. Patches of her flesh turned to blue and purple, dark spots blooming around her throat. A shiny piece of bone protruded from her forehead. Eleanor turned back around. Rose looked perfectly healthy. Rose leaned into Eleanor's ear, whispering that both versions of her were real, the public and the private. Eleanor blamed the wine she had at dinner for this strange sight. Rose told her to look again. Eleanor refused, but she felt her neck nearly snap at the hands of an unseen force, forcing her eyes to meet her reflection. The sight in the mirror horrified her. Large cuts ran across Eleanor's neck. Her head wavered in front of her eyes, like still water disturbed in a pond. Eleanor touched her cheek, reminding herself that all of her was there. But Rose was still speaking to her. She whispered that the vision in the mirror was the only future Eleanor had with Curtis. Eleanor told Rose to leave. Curtis banged on the door, asking who Eleanor was talking to. She lowered her voice to a whisper. She would take this one time to hide Rose's presence from Curtis, but she would never do so again. Rose smiled sadly and then disappeared before Eleanor's eyes. Eleanor gasped and began to tremble, but Curtis was still knocking at the door. She told him no one was with her. She just needed a moment to herself. He didn't believe her. He banged and banged on the door. Eleanor took a steadying breath and opened the door. She nearly collided with Curtis as he barged straight in. Her husband prowled the room, demanding to know who she'd been talking to. She told him no one was there. He grabbed her and pushed her against the wall. Her chest tightened. 
She could barely get the words out, but she repeated that no one had been in there with her. He was welcome to search. Curtis let her go suddenly. The shock of it made her legs give out, and she collapsed to the floor. She clutched at his pant leg, begging him to understand. She was just having a conversation with herself, and a silly one at that. He laughed at her, but there was no joy in it. Her head was starting to hurt. She suggested they go to bed. Both of them were tired. Things would be clearer in the morning. He agreed that he was tired, but he wasn't going to sleep. She didn't understand until he grabbed her head and smashed it against the counter. Stars and several versions of Curtis danced in front of her. She asked him to help her up. He grabbed her by the arms and threw her into the empty tub. Over his shoulder, she saw Rose's shimmering form. The other woman said she was sorry that she hadn't come sooner. Eleanor reached out to her, but all she felt was cold air. Curtis turned the tap on and forced Eleanor's head under it. The rush of hot water burned her face and swallowed her screams. She flailed, but he wouldn't let go. Her lungs burned, begging for air as she began to drown. Curtis loosened his grip, keeping one of his hands on her chest, still feeling her heartbeat. She lost touch with the world for a brief, brilliant moment and woke to a sharp pain in her throat. She gasped for air. Something metal clattered to the floor. Eleanor scrambled to her feet, leaping out of the tub and over Curtis, sprinting for the door, screaming all the while. She made it as far as the vanity, catching one quick glimpse of the dotted cuts on her neck before Curtis was dragging her back to a porcelain hell. Eleanor kicked and screamed and clawed. She told him they were done. Curtis said he felt the same. He kept one hand clenched around her windpipe as he bent down and picked something up. His serrated knife gleamed under the bathroom lights. Then he brought it down on her neck and began to saw. It is said that a rich young bride came to the Old Faithful Inn with her husband in 1915. It was a marriage for love. She was rich and he was poor. Her father was not at all pleased and warned her that if she went through with the match, he would disown her. The bride told him they didn't need help. They had each other. But she spoke too soon. Her new husband had not expected his source of wealth to be cut off, and after threatening to throw her from the widow's walk, he killed her in room 127, decapitating her and leaving her in a pool of her own blood. To this day, visitors at the Old Faithful Inn report visions of a woman in a turn-of-the-century wedding dress strolling the halls and balconies of the great hotel, carrying her own head. Up next, being a hotel maid is never an easy job, but this domestic worker makes a gruesome discovery and a new friend. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. The lobby of the Old Faithful Inn is by far its grandest feature. It is a massive open space with Warren-like hallways extending off into the rest of the hotel. The railings and supports are all carved from natural-looking wood, giving the rough-hewn appearance of tall trees extending up to the ceiling. At its center sits an 85-foot-tall, 500-ton stone fireplace surrounded by wood and leather-bound chairs. This lodge feel has become the go-to style for all of the United States national parks. Even farther above the fireplace sits the so-called crow's nest. This small box-like structure is suspended at the very top of the lodge, directly across from the highest window in the building on the opposite side of the open lobby. It's enclosed on all sides with more of the hotel's natural branches, with a set of small shutters so guests can gaze down on the activity far below. It is here that the legend of the tragic bride ends. Cleaning up after America's most affluent guests had never been Maggie's ambition in life. She wanted far better than scrubbing stains from linens and waxing floors until they no longer reeked of champagne in excess. Her opinion of the wealthy had dimmed substantially as she emptied their waste bins and submitted requests to repair the furniture they'd broken. Several drunken guests had decided that the staff were their property, trying to manhandle them as they saw fit. They were not the kind of company Maggie was interested in keeping. Eleanor, the guest in room 127, was a nicer kind of person. She remembered the names of the staff, and she tipped lavishly. But her husband was like the rest of them bullish and full of contempt. He spent money for himself as though it would never run out, but he never, ever tipped. He screamed at all hours of the night, drunk and rearing for a fight. The staff all knew better than to indulge him. Mikey's heart went out to the poor young heiress who put up with these nightly tantrums in some misguided hope that love would eventually return. If it had ever been there in the first place. When the man slammed the door and stormed out into the darkness several nights ago, the staff had heaved a collective sigh of relief. Maggie wanted to check on Eleanor, but the woman deserved some privacy after her ordeal, a chance to consider having her marriage annulled. Several days passed, and the Do Not Disturb sign became a taunt to Maggie guests didn't usually hole up for several days without requesting something. Eleanor lived like a hermit. No room service orders. No calls for fresh linens. Maggie reported the silence to her boss, who told her if she was this concerned, she should check on the guest, just this once. But if they complained, she was on her own. Maggie nodded her gratitude, trying to rehearse in her head the best way to greet a woman who had just had her life ruined. She knocked on the door several times, then leaned her ear against the wood. Nothing but silence came from within. Maggie knocked again. When she still did not get a reply, she used her skeleton key to unlock the door. The first thing she noticed were small spots of brown on the wood floor. 
work she'd have to deal with later. She scuffed some of the marks away with her shoe before continuing further into the room. Maggie called out to Eleanor, but she got no reply. The bed was neatly made. Some of Curtis's clothes were still laid out for the next morning. Eleanor's wardrobe was neatly folded away. There was a sourness in the air, but Maggie chalked that up to the room having not been aired out. Outside of a steady drip from the bathroom, she couldn't hear anything. On the floor next to the bed was a gold band, the last remains of a dead marriage. She couldn't find hide nor hair of her in the main suite, so the only other option was the bathroom. She knocked, and to her surprise, the door swung inward. Dark brown smudges coated the vanity. Maggie pulled a cloth out of her apron and wiped away the mess. Caked on dirt was surprisingly common in the rooms. This was Yellowstone, after all, and the guests quite liked to tromp around in the mud. But something was off about the texture here. Maggie turned off the dripping faucet and turned towards the luxurious tub. At the edges of her vision, she saw something floating in the cloudy red water. Something familiar. Tears pricked at her eyes, and she turned away before she could look directly at the body. She wondered, heartbroken, if she could have said something, done something, if the nice lady who let Maggie call her by her first name would have ever let her into her private world, would have ever accepted help. Maggie cried, then collected herself. She had dealt with the dead before, albeit never from violence. She could handle this. She would make sure Eleanor had the respect she deserved. She finally leveled her gaze at the tub. The screams left her mouth before she was even aware of them. The poor woman's head was missing. Viscera from her throat was stuck to the insides of the tub. Her spine jutted out awkwardly, a flagpole with no flag. There were bruises on her arms, and her chest was a sickly blue. Waste soiled through the young bride's clothing. Now she knew the smell came from Eleanor. An arm wrapped around Maggie's shoulder, gently turning her away from the body. It was her manager, apologizing. Someone rang for the police. It was clear now that Curtis had been fleeing the scene of the crime. But one question lingered. Where was Eleanor's head? The police started a search for the rest of Eleanor, but the hotel was massive and the park around Old Faithful even more so. Eleanor's father hired a Pinkerton agent to aid in the investigation. He wanted to be sure that this was not another one of Curtis's cons and would accept nothing less than Eleanor's head delivered back to their New York home. Maggie nearly vomited at his callousness. She had vivid nightmares about the body roaming through the hotel, trying to find its missing piece. During the daytime, she could almost hear faint cries from Eleanor's room. Frequently, she had to remind herself that the woman was no longer here. An odor started to creep into the lobby. As much as she tried to scrub the stink off her clothes and skin, Maggie had not been able to cleanse herself of the scent. She worried that she was the one who had brought it into the communal space, that it might never, ever wash off. 
but the other staff reassured her that she smelled as fresh as a daisy. There was no need for her to be concerned. Even so, the scent still stung her nostrils. Several guests complained about the strange smell that filled the cavernous hall. Maggie carried a brush and pail with her as she cleaned the lobby. She started with the baseboard in the walls, then the balconies. She moved up to the next level, and the next, and the next, resolving to do all seven floors. The smell only grew stronger. Maggie could feel it sinking into her skin, tainting her with the mark of death. A warning to whoever found her body, Curtis could be back. A fly buzzed in her ear. She flicked it away. The Wyoming summer could be very buggy. Cleaning each stair and landing, Maggie climbed higher and higher, nearly choking on the scent of decay. More insects started to buzz around her head. She wondered if some foolhardy guest had left their food on a railing on their way to the widow's walk. She wondered if she was now being pursued by the devil, the Lord of the Flies. There was nothing on the railings or on the stairs. All that remained was the crow's nest. She stepped into the little treehouse to find the silhouette of a woman in the corner of the room. She was leaning out the small window over the lobby. Her head bowed for a closer look at the activity below. Maggie was astounded that the guest could stand the smell. Maggie stepped forward to inquire if the guest was all right. But as she opened her mouth, she gagged. There, in the corner of the crow's nest, half eaten by maggots and flies, lay Eleanor's bashed-in head. On August 17, 1959, the 7.2 magnitude Hebgen Lake earthquake hit Yellowstone in southwestern Montana. It caused 28 deaths and $11 million in damage to roads and trees. The earth literally cracked open, forming a lake five miles long and one-third of a mile wide. It now bears the rather on-the-nose name of Earthquake Lake. While the quake was centered around Hebgen Lake, Montana, 60 miles northwest, the Old Faithful Inn shook to its rafters. One of the chimneys fell in, and the supports of the crow's nest were damaged. The little treehouse was subsequently ruled unsafe for guests. This remains a great disappointment to would-be ghost hunters, since the crow's nest is where the bride's severed head was supposedly found. Luckily, she's kind enough to come down from her perch, with sightings reported in balconies of the lobby, and even in the low-lit hallways of the inn's so-called old house, a long-gabled lodge that houses the bulk of its guest rooms. Coming up, we learn the true source of the bride's legend and also discover why you should never cry wolf. Now back to the story. Despite the story's popularity, there are no records of a decapitated bride or her abusive husband in the Old Faithful Inn's century-long guestbook. The origins of plenty of ghost stories are apocryphal. But the inn is in the rather unique position of having a full-on confession to the hoax. George Borneman, a former assistant manager, reported he made up the legend in 1983, adding additional details the following year to give the story a concrete location and date. 
But not every visitor's paranormal experience involves Borneman's headless bride. There are reports of levitating objects and doors opening and closing by themselves in the middle of the night. Many of these witnesses appear to have no knowledge of Borneman's tall tale. One of these witnesses was Borneman himself. In fact, he claimed to have come up with the legend after an unnerving experience he shared with another employee at the Old Faithful Inn, long after tourist season was done. Eli was sort of proud to be included in his boss's deception. Sure, working at the Old Faithful Inn was only a seasonal job, but being part of a ghost story meant he would be part of the legacy of Yellowstone forever. He would be the employee who was around when his manager saw the headless bride. It gave him a powerful feeling of joy to hear tourists repeat the story as if it were 60 years old rather than two. If anyone asked about the bride as he was checking them in, he would lean in close to confirm that all the legends were true. Soon, guests were making their own reports. Levitations, bangs in the night. The story had a life of its own now. Eli couldn't be more thrilled. But tour season had come to an end, and Eli prepared to head back to Texas to join the A&M Dairy Science class of 1986. He'd miss the old inn and kind of wish he could find a way to work for the park service, even if buffalo and elk weren't very much like cows. Still trying to assuage his nostalgia, he agreed to close up the inn for the year, even if it meant he'd be late returning to school. The thought of the lodge standing empty from October to May always saddened him, but he knew how dangerous the area could be in the Wyoming winters. He lit up the great fireplace, he really shouldn't have, but he had the whole lodge to himself, and he couldn't help but want to enjoy a little solitude in the cozy cavern that was the main lobby. One of Eli's favorite elements of the inn was the irregular windows, which caused the light of the interior spaces to echo the dappled forest shadows outside. So he sat in the lobby until the sun went down, watching the sun pick its way through manufactured branches to the inn's forest floor until there was no more sun to be seen. Night fell in earnest, and he put out the fire and locked all the doors. He planned to wake up bright and early the next day to put the last of the glasses and silverware into storage, then say goodbye to the old place for another year. He woke to find it was snowing, hard, a total whiteout. Eli turned up the heater and put on another layer of long johns, blowing on his hands for warmth. He decided a cup of hot chocolate was in order. He would be the one washing the dishes anyway. Eli knew he was alone, no question, so he couldn't explain why he felt someone watching him as he stirred the milk in the pan. The hairs at the back of his neck were quivering, and he could see his breath in the air, even though he was inside. Suddenly, he heard a truly terrifying noise. It was like a scream mixed with a bellow high-pitched and deep all at once, too primal to be human and too anguished to be animal. He jumped away from the stove, flinging the hot milk to the floor in the process. Eli looked to the window. Two yellow eyes stared back at him. He froze. The scream came again, and a massive pair of antlers came into view. An elk, a Yellowstone elk to be precise. They were the white-tailed deer of the park, 
with six separate herds of thousands roaming throughout the summer. But they usually wintered beyond the boundaries of the government land, and that terrifying noise had been a rutting noise. It was nowhere near spring. Puzzled, Eli stepped towards the window, but the shadow of the animal was gone before he could get any closer. The snow was falling so heavily that he couldn't see any tracks. He went back to the stove to clean up his mess and made another cup of hot chocolate. He headed for the lobby to return to his room. But as he entered the massive hall, he was hit by a burst of cold air and snow. The great red door to the inn was thrown open and gusts of blowing snow swirled into the lobby. Eli cursed himself as he ran to close the heavy door, only managing it by pushing it with all his might. Dejected, he turned around to survey the mopping he would have to do in the morning. But there was a woman standing before him. Her hair was wet, plastered to her head by sweat. Though she looked like she had been exerting herself for hours, her skin was nearly blue. She wore a billowing white nightgown. A dark red stain ran down the otherwise pristine fabric. Blood. Her eyes were glassy troubled, as if she only vaguely knew where she was. Confused, Eli stepped forward, wondering where she'd come from and how she made it through the snow. Her eyes snapped up to him the instant he moved. She let out a wailing shriek and ran at him. Eli threw himself against the wall, covering his face with his arms. Nothing touched him. When he lowered his arms, the hallway was empty again. Eli shook his head, telling himself he was tired. There was no point in making another hot drink. He needed to be in bed. He smelled smoke in the air. Panicked, he turned to the fireplace, but there was no flame in the hearth. There was a curl of smoke hanging in the air, as if wafting from invisible lips. As he got closer, he realized it was a floating cigar a trail of smoke curling towards the ceiling. He snatched it out of the air, only to discover it wasn't lit at all. He placed it down on the armrest of a chair and stormed back towards his room. He was sure it wouldn't be there in the morning. None of this would be there in the morning. He was probably asleep already. The hall of the old house was dark at the best of times, but tonight, Eli needed a flashlight to even see his fingers in front of his face. He stepped forward into the dark, trusting his feet to bring him back to his room, back to reality. He felt the hairs at the nape of his neck rise again. There was something waiting for him outside his door. He couldn't see it, but he could hear it, clear as day. It was wheezing struggling for breath before it collapsed to the ground in the dark. Eli rushed forward with his flashlight, but there was no one there. He had to control his own breathing now. His heart thundered in his ears. He waited for what felt like eternity, but there was no sound, no breathing, no screams. He carefully, quietly opened the door to his room stepping inside and shutting the door behind him. There was an elk in his room, an honest-to-goodness elk standing in his room. 
It gave out another unearthly scream and advanced on him. Its breath was cold, its skin grayish blue. Eli realized that its hide was only hanging loosely from its body, as if a hunter had begun to dress it, but he had given up before finishing the task. He could see its organs pulsing through its ribcage as it breathed. Eli took a deep breath and ran for the lobby. He dived behind the front desk, pulling the phone down with him. He dialed quickly, back pressed against the desk. Eli prayed his manager would pick up. Something was very wrong at the inn, and only he had the kind of vehicle that could get up to Eli on such short notice. But when the call connected, Eli lost his voice, reality setting in. There was no way his manager would believe him, not after their little lie. He didn't believe in ghosts, and the ghosts were punishing Eli as a result. He grabbed the cigar, still smoking on the armrest, and followed ghostly tracks out into the snow. George Borneman swears that he made up the bride story to help make the inn feel more mysterious, but not all the phenomena reported line up with the assistant manager's tale. There's also been plenty of actual deaths and disappearances in the area around Old Faithful. There's the sad tale of Maddie S. Culver, who died of tuberculosis at the Firehole Hotel on March 2, 1889. It was a particularly cold year, and the ground was still frozen when she passed away. Her body was placed in two pickle barrels and left in a snowdrift until spring. There's a guest named L.R. Piper, who vanished on July 30, 1900, during his after-dinner smoke break, and Ranger Charles Phillips, who died in the winter of 1926 after mistaking water hemlock for wild parsnip. Considered the most dangerous poison in North America, it can kill a victim in as little as 15 minutes. In their book, Old Faithful Inn, Crown Jewel of National Park Lodges, Karen Wildung Reinhardt and Jeff Henry recount many anecdotes from the workers who built the inn. The strangest by far comes from Bernard Pete Hollen, recounted to Betty Jane Childs during a dinner party in the 1950s. The builders working at the inn in the winter of 1904 would supplement their income by killing elk and buffalo, which was not allowed, and hide the hides in the far reaches of the inn until they could get out to Mammoth and sell them. The footsteps and motion guests tend to report at the inn sometimes seem larger than human life, and while no one's reported any hooved apparitions, it's hard to believe an experience like that didn't leave an impression, and impressions are what it's all about, especially if you ask George Borneman. At the end of the 1983 tourist season, Borneman was locked alone in the hotel when he heard running feet in the hallway. Knowing that no one should be in the building, he followed the sound into the lobby, where it stopped. He could find no sign of an employee or an intruder. At a loss, he raised his eyes toward the ceiling, where the crow's nest looked down on him. He didn't see anything out of the ordinary. But it was then, he contends, that the legend was born. Hotels are strange places. Temporary stops between where we've been and where we're going. Shared, but private at the same time. The space is never entirely ours, no matter how much time we spend in it. No one knows their neighbors anymore. 
But is there any place more anonymous than the out-of-the-way inns on the highways and byways of America? Most of us do our best to keep to ourselves in such places, ignore the creaks and cries in the night, the frightened eyes of the continental breakfast the next day. So who's to say if those running feet in the hallway belong to someone living or dead? Whether you believe in ghosts or not, surveying the Old Faithful Inn's majestic lobby from above, or watching the geyser burst into the sky on a starry night, is enough to make anyone believe in something beyond the scope of the natural world. There's something ancient and magic residing at the Old Faithful Inn, but whether it's beautiful or terrible depends entirely on who and how you ask. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lildy Ritter and Jennifer Rache. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs> <laughs>